Welcome to the Free Mind Podcast. All right, we got a lot to uh, cover in this episode. We're going to try to hit a little bit about just war theory, uh, apply it to the situation with Hamas and Israel, as well as like look into a little bit of just uh, the history of, you know, how did this come about? What led into these things? What is the history of Hamas? Where did they come from? What are they, you know, what are they trying to do? What are they trying to accomplish? And, and hopefully, you know, get our heads around I don't know, some, some sort of semblance where we might be able to stand on this as, as Christians. So um, having gone through the last couple episodes, we discussed uh, eschatology and Zionism, how those things connect. Some of you might be kind of wondering like where I land on these things. And I said this before uh, that I'm still, you know, searching this out. I'm still on a journey trying to figure this out. But I do have some leanings, uh, some some kind of like, you know, I'm, I might be 60-40 or 70-30 here. And I'll probably share those maybe down the road in another episode, but we won't have time to cover it in this one. So what I want to do on this one is like it's just kind of a different angle. So you have the theological side, and that will uh, – that can or often will – drive where folks land on these on this issue. Um, but then you have another aspect of just like the ethical framework, how to apply that. And that will have an impact as well. So, and the two don't necessarily have to be like, you may have someone who is a Zionist who also believes that this is a just war, or you may have someone who's not a Zionist who still would, you know, for instance, possibly stand with Israel because they believe they're justified in doing it from a biblical standpoint of just war theory. Or you may have someone who says, you know, neither one for me, not a Zionist, and I don't think this is a just war, what they're doing. But but at least you can have those categories in mind when thinking through it. I remember... Uh, just when I was in college, uh, we had a friend that was at a university down the road, University of S- South Florida, and I don't know who the professor was, and maybe this doesn't represent all or most of the professors there, although I, I wouldn't doubt it if, it if it did. But basically, this person was trying to argue that there, there was stuff going on with an, an American war at the time. And the professor was telling him that there was no difference between the, t- the terrorist attack on America and the response. And the reason for that wasn't even necessarily because, you know, they, they made the claim that America was doing it for the wrong reason or this or that, or they were lying to the, to the public. It was, it was really just predicated on the idea that any response, uh, no matter what the reason, is the same as terrorism. In other words, it flattened all violence down to one moral category with no distinction. And of course, this is the this is the kind of thing that you get, you know, from from some of the professors in our in our current circumstance. Not to say that some of them aren't more uh, sophisticated than that, but you know that that is when you get rid of God. Of course, you you do lose the the ethical system, so you have to rebuild it. Oftentimes, in the in the kind of postmodern framework or or the woke framework, and it becomes about oppressor versus oppressed uh, rather than some sort of objective standard in and of itself that everybody has to follow. And so, you know, the uh, of course, the absurdity of what that professor was claiming was apparent to everyone in the room, except for the student who had been influenced by this person. Um, 
the absurdity of this idea, you know, can be seen easily. Just an example of, you know, you have someone who breaks into your house and they're going to, you know, they're threatening to rape your wife and, and kill her and you stop the person by killing them. Um, there's clearly a moral distinction, even though there would be violence involved in both cases, um, where the person killing, you know, the, the thief breaking in would actually be morally justified um, as, as a matter of self-defense or defending your family. And so, you know, that that can be applied to nations as well. And that's kind of what I want to get into here. I'm going to pull in the voice of uh, Douglas Wilson just because he's, you know, one, he's good at thinking through these things in kind of a offbeat, you know, way, but also because he is from the post-mill camp and not a Zionist. So you'll get an example of someone who, you know, doesn't hold to that theology. So they're not motivated to, uh, I guess, side with Israel on that basis. Yet, on the basis of just war theory, he um, ends up standing with them for the reasons that he discusses. So I want to want to pull him in here and have and just make some comments on some of the items he brings up, which I think are helpful. So Hamas launched a surprise attack against Israel, which involved thousands of rockets and a deliberate murdering of civilians, along with the kidnapping of multiple hostages. Counting both sides, to date thousands are injured and hundreds dead. This came just a few weeks after the Biden administration released $6 billion back to Iran, which serves as a funding source for Hamas. And so this attack happening now is probably not a coincidence. As a result, Israel... So uh, thanks to the Biden regime on that, right? is now in a state of war. And because war always brings along with it the fog of war, especially in our times, an age already bewildered and wandering around in the fog of peace, it is important for us to remember certain key things. And if we are not in a position to remember these principles, then we must recover them. We really do need to recover them. Some of the conservative Christian hot takes over all this are revelatory and not in a good way. Know your bad guys. The bad guys in this kind of mess should not be hard to identify. If you murder civilians in such a way as to declare to the world that you are absolutely fine with murdering civilians and with the cameras running, then you have also declared to the world your desire to be considered among the damned and depraved. And if you look at the spectacle of such civilians being murdered in this way, and your reaction is to start talking about root causes or various forms of what about it, or you bring in any other distractions, then even though you may not applaud the depravity directly, you are nevertheless still complicit in it. Grasping this principle has been made difficult for some by the inflamed state of our modern politics. But that inflammation is itself a symptom of our disease and not an excuse for it. If you then point to what is sure now to be an Israeli invasion of Gaza, in which Israel will very likely go medieval on the leadership of Hamas, and you simply assert a moral equivalence between what Hamas just did and what Israel is about to do, then you are simply revealing that someone, most probably you, has been beating on your moral compass with a ball-peen hammer. Here is why- And that would be the case for many uh, <laughs> of our you know, elites in academia for, you know, unfortunately. I'm going to explain this carefully, as though the point were a subtle one, but we must also at the same time recognize that it is not really a subtle one. There's no real nuance here at all. In order to make my point, I'm going to postulate an Israeli war crime perpetrated during this upcoming flattening of Hamas in Gaza. I'm asserting nothing, predicting nothing, and accusing no one, but rather I'm simply laying the groundwork for a thought experiment. Suppose a particular Israeli unit was filled with soldiers who were absolutely furious with all Palestinians and who found themselves with an opportunity to do to a family of Palestinian civilians what had been done in the week prior to a number of Israeli civilians. Say that one of the soldiers had 
had a mother who was killed by a rocket, and another one had a sister who had been raped and murdered by Hamas. So the men in that unit looked both ways and then executed this Palestinian family in cold blood down to the little kids. But in looking both ways, they failed to see the news drone that caught it all. My point is that when the footage was released, there would be an uproar, and the men involved would all be court-martialed and tried for their war crimes. They would be tried for these crimes by Israel. The fact that some of them had family members who had been brutalized by Hamas would constitute no defense at all nor should it. And so let us change it up a little bit. Say that the murders were not caught on camera and the bodies were discovered in such a way as to reveal that they'd been summarily executed by somebody, but nobody knew who did it. You would not find various Israeli units, quote unquote, claiming responsibility. And this tells you everything you should need to know. That's an important point there. You know, this hypothetical example, like you said, really does tell you everything you need to know. Um, it, it gives you the, the different paradigms from which these two are working that set them in different moral uh, categories. If footage of a Hamas outrage were released, the chances are very good that it would have been released by Hamas. And if the specific criminals involved were identified, those men would not be tried for their behavior, but rather lionized. If you tried to shame some Hamas spokesman with the incident, he would just shrug. He would say that killing Jews was the point, and if you did not know that by now, you should probably give up on a career of news reporting. He would look into your camera and say that the point of everything they were currently doing was dead Jews. Anything else would be mission drift. And you, sitting there with your ball-peen hammer, wouldn't know what to say. But you should know what to say. Wickedness is wickedness, hammer or no hammer. Seeing red. I've called this inability to make this distinction a moral blindness, but such blindness can come through various causes. The ancients said that anger is a brief madness. There are people who go blind who see red when a martial fit is upon them. They do things they would never do in ordinary circumstances. This is not exculpatory in any way, because we are still responsible for what we do in whatever condition we are in, but it nevertheless happens. This is why civilized armies need to be careful to police their own. But when they police their own, by what standard? And where does that standard come from? Why? That's the question you always want to ask when it comes to morality, right? By what standard and where does that standard come from? And who says? More on this in a minute. Another cause of blinkered reactions is ideological. A person is so accustomed to dropping every political issue into the slots of his particular concerns that when something like this happens, he just moves seamlessly into a different subject, which happens to be his issue. His talking points are the constant, and the outrages that are happening get woven into his talking points. And it really doesn't matter whether or not I agree with him on that different subject. I happen to believe that it is perverse that our federal government is more concerned about the integrity of Ukraine's border than they are about the U.S. border. But how would that make the Russians the good guys? And an intelligent person could believe that more of our resources should be deployed to the Texas border than to the border between Gaza and Israel. But how would that make Hamas any less wicked? You can stop making excuses for Biden without starting to make excuses for Hamas. And it doesn't help if the talking points are evangelistic in nature. If we were all to be shocked by a macabre set of murders that happened in Connecticut, and somebody online started to say things like, well, the victims probably weren't Christians, and the judgments of God are inscrutable, the only conclusion I would draw is that we had found ourselves an evangelist with a tin ear and a tongue like a brick. Relativism and the just war tradition. But what if someone were to say that the just war tradition began in the West, and that Muslims are not heirs of that tradition? Augustine began wrestling with the issue because in the centuries prior, Christians had simply been the persecuted and did not need to worry about how Christ would have them deploy force. 
But after Theodosius made Christianity the religion of the empire and the use of force became an option for professing Christians, they had a significant problem to figure out. What did the servants of the Prince of Peace do with this sword in their hands? Augustine stepped in. So that was the question, you know, in church history, he's saying like, you know, the, obviously the church didn't start out with power as they spread the gospel, though it spread to, you know, more and more people eventually to the point where you had leaders and, and government officials and uh, even whole nations that were had become Christianized. And what do you do at that point? Um, they had to think through that. And he's saying St. Augustine, who we'll come back to in a little bit, uh, was sort of tasked uh, with developing a biblical understanding of how to do war properly as a Christian. And that really funded the really Western civilization. If you think about the Vishal Mangalwadi book, uh, the, the book, The Major World, where he uh, argued that the Bible really was the foundation, specifically Reformation theology uh, and Reformed theology was the foundation of what became Western civilization in America and, and much of Europe, and even even going back before the Reformation. It was the book that, that built our world. And so you have Israel being impacted by that, even though most of them are not you know, Christians and not even at a government place, do not hold Christianity as their religion. Um, they're impacted by that Western civilization mentality, which was built in large part due to those biblical principles developed by even people like all the way going back to St. Augustine. Um, Luther was, of course, a, a, an Augustinian monk. And so, you know, a lot of the reformers brought these ideas into the Reformation as well. Um, and then you think about the the Arabic nations, you know, they're, they're operating off a, a different system. Uh, if he doesn't talk about that much, too, we can go into that a little bit about, you know, the, the Islamic view of war is way different than what St. Augustine developed from the Bible. So, Applied a number of principles that Christians would need to remember, both ad bellum and in bello. What would justify going to war in the first place, and what principles should govern our conduct once the fighting had started? That's an important uh, two points that he makes right there. What are the, So in just war theory... Uh, your reasons for going to war have to be just, but then how you conduct the war also has to be just. So what about this objection? This just war standard is a standard that begins with Christianity and the Muslims are not Christians. The customs of the West, the Geneva Convention can trace its genesis back to Augustine, are not the customs of Islam. So there. This actually illustrates, and very nicely too, why we cannot adopt a humanistic approach to ethics. And the lameness of relativism applies to geopolitical ethics as much as to any other kind of ethics. Moreover, the vacuity of relativism is thrown into high relief by the fact that massive amounts of bloodshed are involved, and all the relativists can do is stammer and look around awkwardly. Our that's a good point that Wilson, I think, often points out and that we were, we're doing this mere Christendom book study. And one of the things he, you know, hits on over and over again is, you know, the, the myth of neutrality and how secularism and even how we think of it in the post-war consensus of liberty and democracy and all that kind of stuff, it's lost any foundation. Uh, it, it You have nothing but relativism. And so it can't deal with things like this from any kind of coherent way uh, logically. And so you do have to just kind of throw your hands up and, and you end up, you know, kind of like the neocons, they thought they could just go in and, and you know, 
implant democracy in all these different cultures as these universal principles that people would adhere to without understanding anything about the cultural background that's required and the ideology that's required and how it's fun, how it's built on um, really on Christian theism. You can't just you know hang it in midair. So, of ethics has to come from outside the world. If there is not a transcendental foundation for right and wrong, one that outranks every human culture, one that overarches all of them, regardless of their traditions, then everything really is relative. Some societies are cannibalistic and some of them are not. Some of them encourage atrocities against the enemy and others do not. Some of them sacrifice thousands of victims on tops of pyramids and some don't. Tomato, tomato. Right. And so that's just you know, given examples of what happens when you do have secularism and you adopt that relativism, it's like, you, you, you know, it's just tomato, tomato, like this person, you know, they, they, this culture chooses to sacrifice, you know, people to the mountain gods. This one chooses to cut, you know, babies heads off for their war. Um, this one takes scalps, you know, and, and we, you know, there's no standard, above them to appeal to, to say that this or that is wrong and this is that or this or that is right. Speaking of victims on top of pyramids, my son in one of his novels portrayed the Aztec outrages as outrages and had a battle with one of his editors over it. Relativism, a bastard stepchild of secularism, is really not in the position to condemn anything. Well, actually, they can condemn one thing, which would be any authoritative word from outside the world telling them to stop being so silly. So, according to the Christian faith, a member of Hamas who gives way to his hatred and who commits atrocities against Jews simply because they are Jews is going to be condemned for his atrocities at the last day by Almighty God. Quote, for the Son of Man shall come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he shall reward every man according to his works. Matthew 16, 27. Christ will judge every man, and not just the Christians. Christ will occupy the judgment seat, and all the nations of men will assemble before him. Quote, and before him shall be gathered all nations. Matthew 25, 32. Christ will judge every Hindu, every Buddhist, every atheist, every agnostic, every Muslim, every Christian, and every Jew. His seat of authority is outside the world, and his dominion extends over every nation. We know that Christ will judge every man, and not just the Christians, because God has given us proof of his authority by raising him from the dead. Because Christ rose, we know that he has the authority to evaluate and weigh the deeds of every man. Quote, because he hath appointed a day in the which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men in that he hath raised him from the dead. Acts 17.31. What this means is that when the last day arrives, one of the first things that will blow away, like wisps of smoke in a gale, is all our vaunted religious pluralism. Not only will it not constitute any defense of any of our sins then, for every mouth will in fact be stopped, but it will also be revealed that this pluralism of ours was always a sham, always a shift, and always an evasion. Another way of putting this is that Muslims are not justified in their behavior simply because they can point to a passage in the Quran. There are such passages, but pointing to them will avail nothing. The man and so, you know, that's the religious pluralist mentality uh, that can that takes place in, you know, secularism is like, well, they had their they had their beliefs and they were operating according to it. And we have ours. We're operating according to them. And there's no you know, there's no arbitrator between the two. They're they're true for you. And so what he's saying, no, 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 it's objectively true. And it's actually rooted in Christ as Lord. And he will judge that. And it won't help you to say, well, I just you know, I was living according to the Quran, which, by the way, 
this is another part that secularism can't really deal with. And even honestly, you see it sometimes in the in the patriot movement right now and in, in the in kind of like the conspiracy red pill world, you'll see this idea that all the religions are actually good and they're and it's they're all peaceful and it's it's just the deep state that gets in there and they they divide us over religion when otherwise we would all be unified, Christians, Muslims, Jews, you know, that kind of thing. And that's actually that's actually not the case at all because these religions actually are di- diametrically opposed to each other. And another part of that myth is that, you know, Islam, Christianity they're both peaceful religions, and it's just the extremists that misuse those religions that perpetrate these great evils. But actually, when you look at it, um, Islam, according to the Quran and the Hadith, there are the literature as well as Muhammad's actions and the actions of the earliest followers of Muhammad. It was very much in line more with Hamas than it would be. You know, thankfully, most Muslims are peaceful, but that's really um, that really is. Peace being inconsistent, I would say, with true Islam, based on what I've come to understand. Um, many of the people who study that in depth and are scholars on that issue would say that no, Muhammad really he believed in jihad, like you know, killing the unbelievers, using war for conversion. Uh, in his earlier life, he wrote more peaceful surahs or chapters in the Quran, but in his later life he began to write and live out this aspect of, you know, we need to use violence um, in this way toward the unbeliever in the spiritual war, jihad uh, against the outside world and, and basically make Muslim nations. And um, so the, the idea that, you know, the peaceful Muslims are adhering to the true thing, I think is exactly the flip side of the reality. Um, and so, you know, that, that, is good to understand as well. Like what, what did Islam actually teach? Um, is it, is it good exegesis for the, for the Muslim to interpret jihad in that spiritual sense? And it doesn't seem so based on the, the context of those verses and how Muhammad himself preached and lived it out. So gave them the Quran will also be standing before the judge of the whole earth as well. Muslims will discover at that time that Allah is not the true God and that their warrant for hatred that they thought they possessed from him was not a valid warrant at all. All of that was forbidden by the true God, the one who will do the actual judging. The reason why people retreat into cultural relativism is because they do not understand the God of the Bible. His authority is absolute. And so the fact that these Muslims do not trace their understanding of war back to Augustine is their failure, not their excuse. Mm. Be careful what you deify. Although Israel is located in the Middle East, they are still in effect a Western nation. This includes not just their virtues, but also their sins and failures. They, together with other nations in the West, are still able to identify war crimes as war crimes. But they, also together with all the secular nations, are unable to give a satisfactory explanation as to why war crimes should be considered crimes at all. Because of this inability, they have no transcendent word, they have to rely on shock for whatever sympathy they get. But as we are seeing, the shock soon wears off. And as we might anticipate, in the next few days there will be shocking images coming out of Gaza too. And for the depraved, the shock can even become a recruiting tool for Hamas. Shock is no substitute for transcendent authority. Israel has no more right to their secular state than anyone else has a right to a secular state. Any secular state, including Israel, has no transcendent reality to point to in order to condemn certain crimes, like those currently being committed against them by Hamas. The fact that the crimes are being committed against Israel doesn't solve the problem. Why is this behavior by Hamas wrong? 
By what standard is it to be condemned? Who says? And remember, Kant is dead now. If there is no God above our geopolitical turmoil, then our geopolitical turmoil has become God. And if our geopolitical turmoil is God, then we just have to let Israel and Hamas fight it out, like two dogs fighting over a piece of meat. If that is the standard, then Israel will take this one. But never forget that the Middle East is crammed full of hungry dogs. Going back to a point made earlier, it is not enough simply to avoid moral blindness. Because we are created in the image of God and are reasoning creatures, we have to be able to give an accounting for the moral judgments we make. And this should be a simple test case. Can you condemn the behavior of Hamas, period, stop? It should be an occasion of dismay that there are quite a few in the West who cannot bring themselves even to do that. But there are even more in the West, enervated by secularism, who are willing to say they are repulsed by Hamas, but if you ask them their grounds for objecting to it, by what standard, all they can do is blink slowly. Why? <laughs> who says? But real evil does exist in the world, and a good example of it would be Hamas. This evil must be opposed by those who have a basis for identifying it as real evil. Anything else is just secularist posturing. And the reason I call it posturing becomes evident if we think about it carefully for a few moments. There can be no ethical judgments between nations unless someone has been established by the Ancient of Days as Lord of the Nations. The good news is that he has been. Amen. So, uh... You know, I think he makes some very important points. It's worth maybe going back and listening to that again if, you know, if you didn't catch it all. But I want to just briefly touch on this. It's from Biblical Ethics from uh, Paul Copan, was one of the co-writers. I forget the other uh, writer here. But just to talk a little bit about some of the specifics of just war theory. But it says, just war theorists attempt to deal realistically with unpreventable violent aggression against the vulnerable and just war principles carry over to service in a police force. Um, I'm going to skip down here. Augustine created the first great synthesis of Christian faith in the practice of war. He argued for the necessity of just war, wars. With rare exceptions, Augustine's defense of war, later followed by Thomas Aquinas and Hugo Grotius, became the standard position of all major branches of the church from that day to this. Augustine argued that any justifiable war must have peace as its goal. Just as God must judge and punish creatures he loves, just war should be inspired not by hatred, but by love for justice and peace by, and by concern for the oppressed. The truly oppressed, not the woke version of oppression. So the issue is not violence versus nonviolence, but just versus unjust uses of force. That's what that professor couldn't see, at least the student's version of what they were claiming. So rather than a presumption against war, quote unquote, our view advocates the presumption of justice, which may or may not call for war. Now, here's seven stable and standard just war criteria um, that they'll give. There's other people, you know, you can look at different versions of this, different highlighted uh, details, but this will give you kind of a, kind of a good rough idea. A synopsis. So number one, must have a just cause. All unprovoked aggression is condemned. A war for self-defense and perfection, sorry, and protection, including defense of other vulnerable nations, is morally legitimate. Number two, just intent. The only legitimate intention is to secure a just or fair peace for friend and foe alike, ruling out revenge, conquest, economic gain, or ideological supremacy. 
Number three, lawful declaration. Since the use of military force is a prerogative of governments, not of private individuals or parties within a state, within the state, a state war must be officially declared by a lawful government. So it has to be declared by the right folks, done for the right reasons, for the right cause. Last resort, uh, number four, war may be entered into only when reasonable negotiations and compromise have been tried and have failed. This does not mean that gross injustices continue alongside endless negotiations. Last resort is a prudential secondary consideration, as are the remaining criteria. So that was a prudential, you know, these are kind of ones that require wisdom. So number five, limited objectives. As the goal of a just war is peace, war should not be committed to the destruction of another's nations, of another nation's economy or its political institutions. Six, limited proportionate means. The weaponry and the force used should be limited to what is needed to repel the aggression and deter future attacks. That is to say, to secure a just peace. Seven, non-combatant immunity. Since war is an official act of government, only those who are officially agents of government may fight, and individuals not actively contributing to the conflict, including POWs, medical personnel and casualties, as well as civilian non-participants, should be immune from attack, unless in cases of supreme emergency, as noted above. So, you know, it would kind of falls, each one of these fall into those two, like, just reason for going to war and then warring in a um, in, in an ethical just sense as well. So, you know, raping the women and, you know, torturing people and killing, you know, civilians, targeting civilians, that kind of thing wouldn't fall under the just war theory. And that kind of describes the two, you know, the hypothetical scenario that Wilson laid out. So um, there's a lot more on that. If you're interested, you know, you want, you want to learn more about just war theory and just, you know, feel free to email me. I can shoot you some more sources or you could just dig around. Uh, Doug Wilson has a lot of good stuff. You can look up on YouTube with that title. Uh, this has this book here, an introduction to biblical ethics, Paul Copan, one of the co-authors, they have a lot of um, resources as well. And, and other footnotes that you can you can look to but it's a it's an interesting topic something that would i think take a lot of the the heat out and shed some more light when we're thinking through these trying to think through these clearly so um i'm gonna leave that for now and go to the next topic here and before before kind of jump into that there was an interesting video i came across you don't always know how you know how accurate these are um i hopefully it's it's pretty accurate but it's a good, it seemed like a good synopsis of some of the history and context between Israel and Palestine. Of course, you know, if you've, you probably have, have heard this, but these two root, you know, back to Abraham, we have the, the son, the sons of Ishmael would be the Arabs and the sons of Isaac would be the Israel, Israelites. Um, and again, depending on how you see that in this modern context, you would see the Israelis being still connected um, genetically to the, at least Judah, maybe broader Israel, that kind of thing. But yeah, check this video out here. 
Most people have heard about the invasion of Hamas into Israeli land, but not many know how the tensions between these two groups got so bad. Jews and the Arabs have been fighting for the Holy Land for hundreds of years, and it all dates back to near the beginning of Judaism, when Moses and Joshua led their followers from Egypt, crossed the Jordan River, and settled in this land in 1000 BCE, where the Kingdom of David was formed. Jews had occupied this land for a little over a thousand years, until Islam was formed in the year 610, and the Arabs took over most of the region by 636. Not one group has ever had full total control over the Holy Land, where Jews, Christians, and Muslims all lived in this region, but the Arabs did control most of the land throughout the Ottoman Empire. In the late 1800s and early 1900s, a new Zionist movement was growing in popularity, where Jews were looking to re-establish an independent Jewish state, ideally in Palestine. As World War I ended and the Ottoman Empire collapsed, Britain was in control of the land and signed the Balfour Declaration declaring the land as belonging to the Jews. In the years following, there were many anti-Jewish riots led by the Arabs in this region who didn't want to see the land given back to the Jews, so England started walking back on their promise of establishing Israel as a Jewish independent state and created new borders for both the Arabs and Jews to live in this region. It eventually got to the point where England was limiting the number of Jews that could immigrate into Israel who were all fleeing Europe during the lead up to World War II. After World War II in 1947, Israel and Palestine agreed on giving the West Bank to Palestine, but Palestinians still felt more land was theirs. In 1967, the Six-Day War broke out between Israel and the neighboring Arab countries, which resulted in a victory for Israel, who now had total control over the land. Palestinians still lived in the West Bank and Gaza Strip, but now Israel had military control over these regions in an attempt to maintain peace. This gave rise to the PLO, which is the Palestinian Liberation Organization, whose mission was to end Israeli military occupation in the Gaza Strip and West Bank, and also the more extreme group known as the Hamas, which has been labeled as a terrorist organization by virtually everyone other than the United Nations, whose main goal is to fully wipe out Israel and all the Jews. That brings us to today, where the Hamas in the Gaza Strip just entered Israel in the Karem Shalom crossing, reaching the border fence and attacking the military base there. Hamas then passed through the Arez crossing and into Israeli towns with not much resistance. Hamas says these attacks are only the beginning of a long war. Most All right, so, um, you know, and if you can actually watch that video, you know, I know some of you might be listening, but it's, if you can pop on later, Rumble or YouTube, it, I think the visuals even help a bit more. So uh, here's another one that came on the history of Hamas. Josh Dawes posted this on his Twitter, and I think this is helpful as well for understanding a little bit about that background. In 1973, Sheikh Ahmad Yassin, an Islamic cleric from Gaza, founded the Palestinian branch of the Muslim Brotherhood. Fourteen years later, in 1987, Yassin founded the Islamic Resistance Movement, or Hamas, as the paramilitary wing of the Palestinian Muslim Brotherhood. Yassin founded Hamas with the help of Abdallah Azam, a highly influential Islamic thinker affiliated with the Muslim Brotherhood. Azam, also known as the father of global jihad, was the mentor of Osama bin Laden and helped him create Al-Qaeda. The doctrines and aims of Al-Qaeda, Hamas, and ISIS, which emerged from Al-Qaeda, are all based on the teachings of Abdallah Azam. In fact, the sign above the door of the Hamas military academy in Gaza reads, 
Welcome to the Dr. Abdallah Azam Academy. Most people think that Hamas's goal is Palestinian independence, but the Hamas charter cites the words of the Prophet Muhammad, quote, the day of judgment will not come about until Muslims fight the Jews. When the Jew will hide behind stones and trees, the stones and trees will say, O oh Muslims, there is a Jew behind me, come and kill him, end quote. In other words, Hamas's founding document calls for genocide against the Jews. Hamas does not seek Palestinian independence. It seeks to exterminate the Jewish people and destroy Israel. Does Hamas represent the citizens of Gaza? In 2006, in a democratic election, Hamas won a majority 74 of 132 seats in Palestinian Legislative Council, the legislature of the Palestinian Authority, which governs the autonomous areas in the West Bank and the Gaza Strip. Hamas remains the majority of this legislature to this day. And ever since 2007, Hamas has total governing control of the Gaza Strip. According to the Palestinian Center for Policy and Survey Research, in a study from 2021, 53% of Palestinians prefer Hamas leadership to that of Mahmoud Abbas, the more moderate head of the Palestinian Authority. And as recently as July 2023, polling by the Washington Institute shows that overall, 57% of Gazans express a positive opinion of Hamas, along with similar percentages of Palestinians in the West Bank and East Jerusalem. So, who is Hamas? Hamas has the same origins, beliefs, and goals as ISIS and Al-Qaeda. Hamas openly calls for genocide against Jews and the eradication of Israel. And Hamas is the democratically elected and preferred leadership of the people of Gaza. Yeah, interesting stuff there, because part of, you know, what we were hearing a lot early on in this conflict was like, you know, if Israel attacks Palestine, it's really not fair because they don't, you know, Hamas isn't represented by the Palestinian people. And there's, they're actually, they're, they're really just a small terrorist group, but actually, from what those stats are, if they're true, you know, the, the 50 per, 57% favorable um, among the Palestinians themselves. Now that still leaves, you know, a large group that wouldn't necessarily be for Hamas and unfortunately, you know, bearing the brunt of any backlash. And you do have that. You have even some Christian Palestinians, although I think that number, the the percentage of that has been thrown around at a lot higher rate than than what it actually is from what I hear as well. But, um, uh, you know, just something, you know, you could see the complexities of these things and that it, it's really hard to, especially in the fog of war, to know who's, who's telling you the truth about these items. But you can see that Hamas, ISIS, al-Qaeda, you know, they really are, I would, I would argue, in, in the vein of true, of true Islam, according to how Muhammad preached, especially the latter part of his life and the latter surahs and how he lived. Um, and I think you do have many Palestinians who seem to uh, agree and appreciate that. And, and supposedly democratically, you know, I'm skeptical of democratic elections these days, but uh, supposedly a majority actually elected Hamas, the Hamas party to be, you know, representative of them. Um, so that, uh, of course, that doesn't justify, you know, targeting um, 
civilians who are non-combatants and that kind of thing. But it does give you maybe a different picture than what you are going to get, you know, from CNN or, or leftist Christians, that that kind of thing early on. So um, you also can see there – with with given the history why it's easy for the the critical theorists the critical race theorists the woke to put you know Hamas and Palestine on the oppressed category and then that justifies anything that they do um physically because the just like uh you know the Islamic side doesn't have a just war theory rooted in Augustine. The woke ideology doesn't have a just war theory either. They kind of have reactions and gut level responses to things, but their woke rubric overcomes that. That's why you have these, you know, students and teachers marching around um, just kind of with these pro-Palestine signs. And, and in many cases, they have just, you know, Absolutely no clue what's going on with any of this stuff, but um, but that religion is driving them. That's their, that is their theology, and that has been played into. In fact, uh, Charlie Kirk. I'm just going to play this little thing he he put up a couple days ago and really connected the two, um, kind of the wokeness to the ideology that I'm talking about here. So listen, to, check this out. I'll read it. Um, real quick, he says, I don't, I'm not sure how to pronounce this name, but Yaha Sinwar Sinar, the head of Hamas in Gaza, took time out of an interview to pander to the left over, quote, the racist murder of George Floyd, unquote. A week ago, I was ridiculed for linking the poisonous ideologies of Hamas and BLM. But at heart, they are both – they are the same hateful ideologies. Both rely on lies. Both commit the worst atrocities imaginable, then scream racist when held to account. So you can see that he's doing this in this Vice interview. To remember the racist murder of George Floyd, he says. George Floyd was killed. I'm reading these footnotes. Uh, as a result of a racist ideology held by some people, the same type of racism that killed George Floyd is being used by Israel against Palestinians, and I want to take this opportunity. Um, so, you know, I, I don't I don't fully agree uh, with Kirk that it's the same ideology. Islam is obviously different than wokeism, but they do get put together on the scale of intersectionality within the woke religion. And I think this guy is appealing to that because he, you know, you can get allies with uh, with this group of folks who who is committed to this ideology, and that's what they're they're trying to they're trying to cater to their allies in the West on the basis of woke ideology, even though woke ideology is fundamentally at odds with true Islam and with Hamas and and that. You know, I saw the uh, the meme the other day. I told a friend this. It had on the bottom, it had uh, – basically up top it said, is somebody going to tell them? And on the bottom it had cows picketing. It had signs that were in front of McDonald's and they said, you know, cows for McDonald's. <laughs> and then on the top it, it had, uh, you know, some LGBTQ – this was real though. They had – it had a sign up – that said uh, queers for Palestine or queers for Hamas or something like that. And, and, you know, of course the title said, is somebody going to tell them? So, you know, that, that there, Hamas, like that leader there is willing to take advantage of that idea and play that up um, for his benefit. But at the end of the day, Islam is, you know, they, those are the kind of groups that would kill, you know, LGBTQ uh, so-called people that identify with that ideology and as those items so 
I was going to get into one more little video uh, from this lady that, you know, said that I guess she worked for the, I want to say IDF for Israeli uh, defense. And just she was really questioning the idea that, that Hamas was able to come across the border like that um, without them knowing. And so but I might I might save that for another time. There's lots of questions and lots of like theories floating around, like what what really happened with this? But for now, I think we covered enough to just say, man, like, you know, just war theory that comes out of the Christian framework needs to inform how we think about these issues, whether it's Israel or another country, um, whatever it is, in conflict, um, even if you're not a Zionist. And, of course, even if you are a Zionist, you could still, you know, think through this element as well. And so um, – and then maybe understand a little bit about the history and, and the fact that, you know, when the when news organizations, including the neocons, because they beat the war drums, you know, they've been beating them for years and, and continue to beat them in many cases based on, you know, false narratives and, and not even taking – you know, pretending to take some just war elements into account more times than not for the neocons. But, you know, just helping us to carefully think through these things and then after all that, you know, what should America involvement be, uh, which would be a separate question. And at this point, you know, there's lots to be said that the people that want America to go into war every time something comes up, whether it's Ukraine or Israel, they they have been people that I think we can say, man, they they have not been trustworthy at all. Um, So we need to hear from sane voices out there. And if you can make a good argument for it, you know, from a biblical perspective, a geopolitical perspective um, that fits within this this framework, then, you know, do it. But, you know, I think we should be our, our, our disposition should be a little hesitant toward believing the narratives and and being stirred up to action by, you know, people like uh, Don Lemon, <laughs> for sure, but even Sean Hannity. Um, and so, you know, hopefully this is helpful. And uh, yeah, maybe we'll keep doing some of this down the road. Maybe I'll pull in some of these other videos, like I said, that are that are kind of questioning the narrative of what happened and what the responses have been. Because there is a whole kind of red pill side to saying it, even these attacks and, and things and how that it's happened uh, raises some questions about like, man, is there something sinister going on? Is there some infiltration in Israel that's that's kind of like open the door to this stuff on purpose. And if so, what's the, what's the aim here? And, you know, what do we do with all this? And, and quick last side note, you know, um, I have, you know, uh, I, I, I'm someone who really, you know, loves Israel, been there once, was supposed to go in November and it got canceled, um, was really looking forward to it and um, really appreciate the people over there, the pe- especially the Messianic Jewish friends I have from over there and from over here that are connected with Israel. Um, you know, I, I back in the day, I thought Netanyahu was kind of like a Israeli Trump, but, you know, he, he since then he has really disappointed me a few times and I don't know quite what to make of him at this point. Um, for I'll just give you, you know, two for instances, but he was very much uh, in involved with mandating the vaccine and even said some really weird comments about, you know, letting Israel be the, be the lab test for Pfizer and almost kind of like in a happy way, like, like he was happy to let them be, you know, experimented on in that sense. And then also, you know, he was the first one to call Biden and congratulate him for winning, quote unquote, the election. 
um, when there was very much contention going on and, and very like just huge questions, huge you know irregularities, and he, you know, the first one to call over and kind of try to seal the deal, and, and I don't know maybe politically schmooze a little bit, but you know I, that that definitely changed my view of him. And I'm not saying he's all bad or all good. I just don't have the same view of him that I once had so you know in the Mossad as well like you get a, you hear a lot of stories about them being kind of like our CIA like there's some good folks and then there's some nefarious folks and there's infiltration and there's amazing stuff they do and then there's some really dark stuff they do that's uh that is not what we think it is so anyways that that's a whole separate matter but hopefully this is helping you just kind of like tease out some of the elements in this issue And uh, thanks again for joining us on the Free Mind Podcast, and we'll see you next time.